For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Oh, my ancient twisted karma, from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. Oh, my ancient twisted karma, From beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma, from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, Born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. Meta Sutta This is what should be accomplished by the one who is wise, who seeks the good and has obtained peace. Let one be strenuous, upright, and sincere, without pride, easily contented and joyous. Let one not be submerged by the things of the world. Let one not take upon oneself the burden of riches. Let one's senses be controlled. Let one be wise but not puffed up, and let one not desire great possessions even for one's family. Let one do nothing that is mean or that the wise would reprove. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong, in high or middle or low realms of existence, Small or great, visible or invisible, near or far, born or to be born, may all beings be happy. Let no one deceive another, nor despise any being in any state. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another. Even as a mother at the risk of her life watches over and protects her only child, so with a boundless mind should one cherish all living beings, suffusing love over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate an infinite goodwill toward the whole world, standing or walking, sitting or laying down, During all one's waking hours, let one practice the way with gratitude, not holding to fixed views, endowed with insight, freed from sense appetites. One who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of birth and death. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness, we have chanted the Metta Sutta. We dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, our first woman ancestor, great teacher Mahaprajapati, Our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma. Our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Dogen. Our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu. The perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri. 
May all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas extend their compassion to the benefit and well-being of all sentient beings. And to our great abiding friend, Mary Traegert, may she find her true place in the Buddha way. All Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, wisdom beyond wisdom, maha, prajna, paramita. And now Taigen will introduce our speaker. Good evening, everyone. Um, so uh, maybe you all know Bo Goldwitzer or uh, Tenzo. Uh, Bo is going to talk tonight about his experiences and practice. So thank you so much, Bo. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> it's awesome to see so many... Uh, uh, familiar faces. Um, thank you for inviting me to speak tonight, Tygen. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah. <laughs> so as Tygen mentioned, I, and, and as probably 99% of you know, I'm the Tenzo at Ancient Dragon. But and I kind of put in this talk together, I realized that I hadn't like cooked food for anybody. Well, except for my wife. Um, for like 11 months or something. It's kind of nuts. Um, so I miss it. And I miss seeing a lot of you on a more regular basis. Um, the, uh, the title of my talk is um, Why Me? Or Wanting Things to Be Different Than How They Might Be. Um, so I'm going to, in the talk, I'm going to talk about a little bit, you know, uh, my experience in the last 11 months, the pandemic being sort of tightly, um, in conjunction with my, uh, journey as a first year elementary school teacher in the Chicago public schools. Um, so I'm going to tell the story of that, uh, and then talk about, um, some of the practices, that have helped me and the stories that have helped me sort of navigate um, <laughs> some of the challenges of that. Um, first off, I want to acknowledge uh, a book that I just finished, um, Black and Buddhist, uh, and specifically the last essay of the book, which written by Ruth King. And this essay is called Wholeness is No Trifling Matter. And in the book, uh, Ruth King talks, oh, and everybody can hear me okay? Oh, okay, great. Thank you so much. Love seeing all those thumbs. Uh, uh, so in, the, in, in her essay, Ruth King talks about a, man, a mantra that she practices with, and, it's, uh, and the mantra is, life is not personal, permanent, or perfect. Um, and, you know, I just read this essay a few weeks ago, but it really hit home for me and has been very, very helpful um, for me in these last few weeks. Of the three, life being not personal, uh, permanent or perfect, um, not taking life personally, um, that, that's the one that I've been sort of especially working with. And, and hence sort of the first part of the title, <laughs> Um, and I've noticed this why me pattern for myself in the last year. I mean, I'm sure it existed before that, uh, but I've become more aware of it, uh, in this last year. Um, thanks to my practice and, and thanks to Zazen. Um, and, uh, so yeah, why me? It's a, a sort of funny question to ask in the context of, Zen practice, I think, 
So, you know, of course, why me? In other words, why is this happening to me? <laughs> but also why me as in what bizarre and sort of miraculous forces have come together to put me in, in this particular place, this time, this body, etc., and all this impermanence and imperfection. Um, obviously, why me is taking things extremely personally. Why me is asking why the whole world might somehow be arrayed against you in this moment. Why me um, is a funny thing, I think, to ask in the middle of a global pandemic, as if, you know, such a thing as a pandemic could be arrayed against you personally. Um, and I find my experience with why me, when indulged too much, um, can be a major sort of energy suck and kind of can and undermine my ability to act, to can go on, to respond skillfully. So as I mentioned, this past year has given me, past 11 months maybe more specifically, has given me a lot of opportunity. <laughs> Already being inclined to ask why me it has given me a lot of opportunity to ask why me. Um, so a couple years ago, just to give some background, I decided that I would switch from teaching college to teaching elementary school. Um, so I spent a couple years at DePaul um, to gain certification to teach grades one through six. And about this time last year, I was wrapping up my classes at DePaul and then getting ready to student teach at a, a elementary school in Edgewater, just a couple blocks from where I live. Um, then, you know, right around this time last year, I think we've, we've, we obviously became, you started to become more and more aware of the coronavirus. And I remember very specifically, um, in March, you know, we were all kind of tracking where the virus was trying to predict maybe what was in store for us in particular. And, and a lot of us were using Italy as a model, right? Because, the virus had hit there a, a little bit earlier than us. Um, and, and, and so we were sort of seeing, you know, what measures they were taking to see maybe to, and to predict what measures we would have to take here. And I remember um, reading and, and seeing that they had closed their schools, which was, you know, so I was, uh, and that they had done, and that they had done, uh, and, and there was this kind of approximate, they were approximately like, 10 days ahead of us in terms of these measures. And I remember counting the days on my calendar to see like, okay, let's say we, you know, given this 10 day period, well, when it, what would that mean for us closing our schools if we had to take that measure? And those 10 days, I counted them for like, they ended on the day that I would start, you know, I was supposed to start student teaching at this school uh, in Edgewater. And that ended up being true. So the day that I was supposed to start student teaching at this school was the day that the Chicago public schools closed. Um, so that was my first opportunity to ask why me, why, why did I have to be student teaching in the midst of uh, this apparent global pandemic? I mean, I didn't know what that, you know, that that was the case then I thought we might be closed for a couple of weeks. What would this mean for my certification, all this work that we had done the last couple of years to get to the point would I have to wait to get certified in the fall? Would I have to pay more for my classes, et cetera? So in that way, you can see how this why me question can kind of compound upon itself. Um, eventually, I would student teach, but in a reduced form. I ended up making, you know, instead of being a class of fourth graders five days a week, I was, I'm videos and that was basically the extent of my student teaching. But I would get certified. The state kind of passed us along and said we didn't have to do all this testing that we would normally have to do. Certified, no problem. But somehow, you know, that didn't stop the <laughs> the predilection towards why me um, for a job. And, and that was hard, you know. Uh, it was a few months of, of looking for a job. Um, and the question occurred again, why me? Why did I have to be looking for my first elementary teaching job in the middle of a global pandemic? Why was this happening? Why did I have to be a candidate who could not show that he had, you know, student taught in the normal, typical way, but I didn't find a job? What then? Um, 
So again, these, these questions compound, the pitch of them gets higher and higher. Um, and they tend to sort of outshout uh, your, your rational mind a little bit. Um, and so, yes. Um, and the, the point of them didn't feel like, you know, the point of why it doesn't feel like you need to answer it, but to kind of keep asking you these questions until you get sort of exhausted. But then I got a job, right? So you're starting to see a pattern here. <laughs> Despite all this why me things kind of work out here and there. So I got a great job teaching fourth grade science and social science at a terrific school on um, the near south side. A really impressive um, But then somehow this did not stop me from this pattern. Um, uh, <laughs> and it's worth saying here, you know, that this isn't meant to sort of beat myself up for the why me. It's just to try to see it clearly. You know, I don't think of it as like good or bad. It's just, you know, what, what's happening in my mind. So anyway, after getting my job teaching, then I had to teach. Um, and again, we're in this global pandemic. And so I was teaching you know, at the beginning of the year, we were teaching remotely and actually we still are. Um, so I was trying to teach nine and 10 year old fourth graders through Google meet, which is Google's version of zoom. So why me, right? Why was my first teaching job on a computer like this? On the second day, one of the students said out loud on the Google Meet that she missed their old science and social science teacher. <laughs> uh, why me, right? Um, you call on kids to answer questions, and when they would unmute, it sometimes sound like, you know, a 16-piece brass band was playing in their house. Uh, why me? first couple of months, it wasn't unheard of for kids, you know, to ask me why I look so tired. Why me? Why me? Why was this happening? Right. Um, and I was counting the days, honestly, the first, again, that first period of teaching was really difficult. I was day one, I was counting day two of 180 days, probably not the best way to be <laughs> passing the time. And like a lot of first year elementary teachers, you know, I, I was really wondering if this was the right decision that I had made. I was Googling other jobs that I could get with my teaching certificate like a weekend. Um, and at night, I ate a lot of cookies and watched a lot of the British baking show. Um, so, but things, things started to settle in a bit at least. And then at the end of the November, at the end of November, actually on the night, um, that we were all going on Thanksgiving break, the district CPS announced that we would be going back um, in person into the buildings, um, that we would be returning to school theoretically at the end of January. Um, and this, as you can imagine, started a whole new round of why me? Why was my district sending me back into a building when we were in the middle of, at the time, you know, and it's abated a little bit now, but at the time, a pretty severe second wave of the virus. And when that seemed to be only getting worse and worse from there, wh why did I, you know, a lot of this why me is why do I even have to be thinking about all this on top of just managing the day-to-day -day of a first year of teaching, right? Um, and, and that was over two months ago now. Uh, and, you know, as of today, we're still in that struggle of reopening or not. I, you know, I don't know how closely you've been following the news, um, but uh, we were supposed to be back in the buildings, you know, um, well, I was supposed to be back February 1st, uh, you know, all of uh, elementary teachers. Um, but the union, you know, has, um, we, we, out of things essentially, and uh, we've stayed remote uh, despite the wishes of the district. And so negotiations have been ongoing with that. Um, and right now there's a proposal before us um, about, you know, reopening. And I think probably as we speak, the House delegates of the Chicago Teachers Union is voting on whether or not we will accept that proposal. Um, so again, to personalize that... <laughs> as would be a tendency, um, you know, why me? Uh, you know, we have these two or three union meetings a week now. That wouldn't be the case if we weren't going through. Why me? Like, uh, you know, uh, well, so, right, why me? Uh, 
why am I having to shoulder all this uncertainty along with the normal amount of uncertainty that would come with being a first year teacher? Why do I have to worry about what would happen if I was forced back into the schools and contracted the virus and brought it home? What would happen then? What if I made my wife sick? Why me? Again, the questions compound. And and it's not like these questions aren't legitimate. Many of them are. They're legitimate worries, right? Um, It makes sense to sometimes feel hysterical in a pretty hysterical world. Um, (laughs) So this is why that mantra of Ruth's king, um, life is not personal, permanent, or perfect, has been really important for me in these last few weeks. so life is not personal. The pandemic is not personal. The virus is not personal. Obviously, remote learning is not personal. I don't have to take personally when a student is not on camera or not engaged necessarily in the lesson. There's so much going on in the lives of these nine and 10 year olds, right? Like I know that I can see that <laughs> when they have their cameras on, they have siblings. Um, some of them are taking care of their siblings as their parents are, are working um, you know, they have, they're playing Fortnite while we're in class, you know, so they're, they're busy. <laughs> it's a variety of things. The labor struggle is not personal, even if it touches on a lot of things that I care deeply about. I don't have to treat it personally. It's not like it's Bo versus the mayor. Um, it's, it's so much more than that, right? That's, that's part of what practice helps me to realize. It's about all the causes and conditions that set us down in this moment, all the causes and conditions that make me up, um, thus calling that original me, why me into question in the first place, and all of the causes and conditions that make the mayor up too, all of us, all of the union members involved in the negotiations, all the causes and conditions which brought us this pandemic in the first place and our response to the pandemic, which sets us in this very difficult place in the first place, I think. So I don't have to take all those causes, those innumerable causes and conditions personally. In fact, it's a deep irony that I would think that I could. At the, I recognize at the heart of this why me is this desire, of course, for things to be other than they are or, you know, other than how we think they are. After all, we're, we're so confident about how we think things are. But as Dogen reminds us, and as Tuckin and Stephen Hine were talking about last Sunday, this is from the Genja Koan, the ocean is neither round nor square. Its features are infinite in variety. So how can we, in other words, from our limited positions, be so sure of, of the shape of things? So I have found lurking behind why me, the desire to have things different than they are or that they appear to be, to have myself in a situation of less challenge, less suffering, something easier. Really, you know, a couple of months ago, it was this constant, like, <laughs> I want this to be easier. I want to be comfortable. Um, that was such a thing that was recurring over and over for me. Um, to be able to choose a situation where less suffering might somehow be guaranteed. It's insane, but that, you know, I can feel that. Um, so a lot of this about, is about picking and choosing, thinking that I might have some choice in my reality. Well, my choice is really about taking reality a little less personally. Related to this, I wanted to share a story that Tim, Tim Burkett, um, writes about, uh, Suzuki Roshi in his book, um, Zen in the Age of Anxiety. Um, it's about Suzuki Roshi, Roshi and watching movies. At the time, uh, Burkett was a young student of Suzuki Roshi's in um, San Francisco. So this is what he writes. It's a little, you know, a longish passage. Each day as I, um, this is Tim Burkett writing, what entered the building for morning meditation, I passed a giant poster advertising the upcoming movie. So uh, Suzuki Roshi would watch movies with the um, Japanese congregation on, on Saturday nights. A typical poster featured swords dripping with blood, decapitated limbs, and and geishas in distress. 
these look like pretty lousy movies by my standards. When I wanted some entertainment, I went to North Beach where they showed artistic movies that had some depth and were emotionally moving. I felt bad that my teacher, Suzuki Roshi, had to watch those B-rated imports. One Sunday morning, Suzuki looked tired. Do you have to watch movies every Saturday night? I asked. Oh, yes, he said cheerfully. We watch movies together on Saturday nights. Oh, I'm sorry you have to watch those movies. Do you like any of them? I asked. Oh, I like them all, he said. He liked them all? Apparently, my teacher was pretty unsophisticated when it came to movies. Burkett goes on. This was during a time when my Zen practice had become very difficult. It was my can't get no satisfaction uh, phase. And all sorts of memories and fears were coming up in my meditation. Over and over, I relived past dramas and projected them into the future, rehearsing how I wanted to be different. The stillness and joy I'd experienced my first months of Zen practice had vanished. I seemed to have no control over the images that cycled through my mind on and off the cushion. So, uh, and then I think, let's see. I like them all was a teaching that I didn't recognize until much later. This is Tim Burkett still writing. Even though I didn't understand the significance of those four words at the time, they stayed with me. Suzuki wasn't judging the movies he saw. He wasn't comparing them to the artsy films playing at North Beach. He was simply present, attentive, and engaged. This was his way. So this had me thinking. Without downplaying what we've all been living through for these past 11 months, um, with all its, you know, tragedy, maybe we've been in something of a B-movie ourselves, right? Like a disaster film with whose implausibilities would be laughable if they weren't so tragic. I mean, and here I'm thinking of some of the characters from this past year. I'm not going to name them. I'm sure you know the names of many of them, right? So I'm not proposing that reality is exactly a B-movie, So if reality is not exactly a B-movie, then sometimes can we not see that at least the movies in our heads are B-movies, you know, messy, melodramatic, poorly scripted, sort of sometimes poorly acted. Certainly the movie that plays in my head entitled Why Me takes on these qualities. They're disaster flicks filled with all kinds of catastrophes, whether the catastrophes have happened or not. The question isn't whether to have these movies or not. I, I think they, they happen. They're there. They occur. It's for me what to do with them, how to watch them without um, getting subsumed by them, how to watch them without um, telling the, the sequels, two, three, four, or five, and six, how to not take them too personally if they, if they are indeed movies. More than even watching them uh, after Suzuki Roshi, how to like them. How to maybe even like, and I don't know if this is possible or not, but even love these kind of catastrophe flicks that play through your head. And then the same would go for reality for this disaster film we find ourselves in. How to like it, I'm proposing without knowing if it's possible, how to love it, how to love it and how at the same time how to ride it without getting drowned by it. Ruth King writes that she discovered through meditation, through awareness that she could, quote, ride the energies of persistent and disturbing thoughts and emotions without interference or personalization. When I did this, she writes, I found that old traumas and pain came out of hiding and I could then honor and dissolve them. I discovered that I could tolerate being vulnerable and rest in tenderness. And I became deeply acquainted with ease and joy, regardless of my circumstance that it is possible amidst all of our disturbing thoughts, questions, laments, pleading, suffering, to have ease and joy, I think, is the miracle of Buddhist practice. Later in his story about Suzuki Roshi and movies, Tim Burkett writes, Today, people say that Suzuki Roshi was a great enlightened being, but I don't know about that. He lived lightly, joyfully. That is what I remember most about him. Oh, oh! I wish to live lightly, joyfully, to live lightly, joyfully as a response to our difficult and wildly entangled world. 
I know we're not supposed to want too much, but I, I want that more than anything. <laughs> With that, let me uh, introduce another kind of teaching. Um, and here I'm going to speak on the fourth of the six perfections, joyful effort as um, a way to practice with why me as a way of not taking the world too personally um, or taking too personally what happens to us. And Matt is here and Matt has been a huge support for me in these last five months. Um, You know, we talk almost weekly. Uh, Matt is also works in elementary, in elementary school. Um, And he's obviously a Zen practitioner as well. Um, And so you know, we, we talk, like I said, once a week, you know, often and for an hour, hour and a half. And we've been sort of informally studying this, um, this, uh, this perfection together through, um, Norman Fisher's book, uh, the world could be otherwise imagination and the Bodhisattva path. Um, so yes. Uh, and it's been a huge help for me. Um, so uh, the idea of, you know, trying to practice joyful effort when you can feel pretty drained at times in the midst of all this, right? So in this chapter, uh, in his chapter on joyful effort, Fisher describes as sort of a prerequisite to joyful effort, having binocular vision. That is, not only seeing with our limited personal vision, perhaps you know, this is how I would relate it to me, but my why me vision, but also with the vision of a bodhisattva. He writes, with just one eye, we see serious problems, intractable social, economic, political, and environmental dilemmas. We see attitudes and emotions that confine us, making our lives difficult. We feel beleaguered in a troubled world. So, okay, yeah, that's how I feel sometimes. However, he goes on, Seeing with depth requires a second eye, the bodhisattva eye. The second eye sees our extraordinary human potential. It sees that we have it in us to be bodhisattvas practicing these six perfections, generosity, ethical conduct, patience, joyful effort, meditation, and understanding. In this chapter on joyful effort, He goes on to encourage us not to fall into discouragement, self-doubt, or situational depression. So not not to have those feelings, but just not to fall into them. So, And he has a practice that when we encounter these thoughts or feelings, to note them and then practice stopping, breathing, and saying to ourselves, I am a precious human being like everyone else, I have been given this life for a reason. So again, to be clear, it's not that we're not allowed to have these feelings, these thoughts and feelings, as we all know, they occur, but rather to acknowledge them, shine our awareness on them, and then remind ourselves as a practice that we are precious, beautiful, that we may practice like bodhisattvas right now in this moment. And so You know, like I said, Matt and I have been talking about that chapter. We talked about that sort of practice of saying that to ourselves when feeling discouraged or, you know, these for me, why me feeling? And I wrote that down. It's on my desk. I can see it while I'm teaching, right? So joyful effort as an antidote to why me. No, this doesn't issue solely from us, though, right? It's a group effort. And that's why I'm, you know, talking about this practice, you know, of uh, the, these discussions that Matt and I have have, have been having, this, these, this talking. Because being with our negative feelings, our feelings of discouragement or self-lament um, means reaching out for support. You know, Fisher notes that as well as a practice in, in this chapter on joyful effort. And this has been a huge practice of mine in the last, you know, especially five or six months. So, Right now, I would like to publicly acknowledge acknowledge some of that support that I've been lucky enough to receive. My wife has been, I mean, huge. She, I, the school should be paying her for the support that I get uh, uh, f- uh, from her every day. Um, my sangha, ancient dragon. I mean, even though I'm able to attend a little less, still um, such a huge support in in my life, Matt. Like I said, th- to be able to have these conversations on teaching 
in our practice has been major. Um, <laughs> I have a therapist who I encounter, engage with pretty consistently, who's been a huge help for me, my family, my colleagues at school who literally I've never met in person, but um, have been a huge support to me. And then I have to shout out, especially in this moment, my union, my the Chicago Teachers Union. Um, uh, you know, I don't know. It, it, it's it's kind of wild to me to consider where I would be or where we would be, where all teachers, paraprofessionals, all the people represented by the union would be without um, the willingness to stand up for ourselves and engage. There was no plan before. Um, you know, it was like, here's three masks and go into the classroom before our union um, stepped up and got, you know, real engaged with this. And now there's a plan. I don't know that this plan is going to end up being the final plan, but that's a huge, to have the, um, the security of that solidarity is, is major. And I want to say too, here in this period, um, <laughs> the Buddha <laughs> has been a support, right? Like, I don't know that I would have thought that way exactly uh, before this experience, but I just want to include the Buddha here, like, you know, and, and all Buddhas, um, and the innumerable Buddhas who make up our world. And, you know, uh, I, I appreciate, I feel supported by, um, I don't know exactly what to call that, but um, their presence. So, looking for that support, reaching out for that support, that's stretching beyond ourselves. That's stretching beyond the limited point of view that comes with why me and joyful effort allows us to practice in any condition. That's the promise allows us to practice amidst the global pandemic or no global pandemic allows me to practice in remote learning or no remote learning allows us to practice whether we are locked, locked in, (laughs) out of our classrooms or back into our classrooms allows us to practice while we're sick or not sick, while we're employed or not employed throughout whatever suffering we might experience. Even to practice through our limited mind when our why me mentality crosses our thinking, however long or briefly, we can practice joyful effort even when it seems we can make no effort at all. Um, In his chapter on joyful effort, Fisher talks about one of his favorite Zen stories relating to this. And I'm one one I'm sure, you know, all of us almost are familiar with. And it's about Master Mazu. And um, so here's Fisher first kind of on Master Mazu. Mazu was said to be a huge man, seven feet tall, mighty and scary with more than 100 fully trained disciples. It takes a lot of joyful effort to train even one disciple. Okay. I have, I have 60 fourth graders, so that's not quite a hundred disciples, but it takes a lot of effort to teach 60 fourth graders to anyway, having more than a hundred disciples is quite a feat. Never equaled as far as I know before or since in the story, Mazu is sick, perhaps very sick, perhaps at the end of his life, he's lying in bed in a very reduced state, helpless, like a little baby. His attendant asks him, how is your health today? Mazu replies, sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha. Fisher goes on, sun-faced Buddhas are vigorous Buddhas who live for many eons in full strength. Moon-faced Buddhas are cool, quiet Buddhas who live for a day and a night. So Mazu is saying, and this is Fisher, in effect, yes, I am a wreck, but I am a Buddha wreck. Whatever condition I am in is the perfect condition. In any condition, I have what I need to practice joyful effort, to be a bodhisattva in the appropriate form and style to fit the occasion. (laughs) I felt great relief reading the phrase Buddha wreck. I can relate to this right now. I think I have spent a lot of these last several months being a wreck, all right? A teaching wreck, sometimes a husband wreck, a Buddha wreck. My practice, I'll admit right now, perhaps to your terror, is not perfect. I sit, but I don't sit very well. My mind races with the world. Sometimes I remember to breathe, sometimes not. Once in a while, I even check the clock to see how much time I have left to sit. Hmm. When I chant, which is not often, my chants are a little off kilter, crooked. 
I'm thinking about other things. I haven't attended our Zendo as much as I'd like because I don't know if I can spend another minute sitting in front of a screen. In these last several months, there have been times I've felt very far away from practice, felt so wrapped up in the world that I could not see very clearly at all. And then on the other hand, there are times where I felt never felt so close to practice, again, to the Buddha, to Buddhas, than I have ever felt before. I'm a wreck too. It's not perfect. It's not permanent. I try not to take it too personally. So thank you. And I'm happy to, um, I mean, you know, the point of this is to have dialogue more than questions even. So I appreciate um, anything anyone in this group has to say. So thank you. So please, anyone who uh, has comments, responses, uh, thank you so much, Bo, for sharing yeah, thank uh, this uh, wonderful, joyful, difficult practice. <laughs> um, so uh, comments, responses for anyone, please feel free. Are there any other Buddha wrecks here? Besides <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> a few hands. <laughs> oh, do you want me to call? Matt. Oh, yeah, great. No, I'll call Matt. Matt's kind of the hero of the story, right? <laughs> yes. I saw Matt blushing. One finger. Right, right. (laughs) I have great faith that we will be hearing Matt sometime soon. Maybe he's driving somewhere so we can... He looked like he was sitting in a closet. Matt, can you hear us? Oh, yeah, there's a second one. Oh, there's two minutes. All right. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Sorry about that. My microphone was disabled and I had to go into settings and blah, blah, blah. Okay, anyway. Um, thanks, for, thanks for the talk, Bo. Um, I, uh, I really appreciated the part where you were like, Talk, naming all the people who supported you and realizing that was that's a great way to um, get over some of this like personalize everything. So I really appreciate that, and like that might be a good practice for me to do on a regular basis. Just like name five people who are. I don't know. I think that's a great. I thought that was a great. Oh, thank um, And um, I really appreciate this. Just all of the, the you know the personal stories you brought and just being open to how um, you know. A Buddha wreck you are. <laughs> um, when I, I wanted to um, see what you had to say about so Norman Fisher when he was on his tour for the book um, "The World Could Be Otherwise," um, he said that his original title for the book was "The World Is Otherwise." Um, and so I kind of think it's interesting, like these two titles are like it's almost like two titles for a book like this. So could you what would what do you think of that? Anything you want to add to that? Or? Yeah, I mean, um, I think you, yeah, you mentioned that to me, I think at some point that you had heard him say that. And, um, and it, it, it makes me think again of the, um, what Tigan and Stephen Hine were speaking about, you know, that, that those one or two lines from the Genja Koan, you know, last Sunday when, uh, during that talk of, you know, just, just to assert the world is otherwise, you know, it, 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 <laughs> whatever you're thinking right now, it might be, it it is otherwise than that too. Um, you know, and, and, um, you know, for me at least returning to that, like, uh, returning to the idea of like just this insane number of causes and conditions for everyone, you know, like every, every situation, 
way beyond our seeing and experiencing. Um, first of all, I think just, yeah, as, as a way of acknowledging that reality and just to say like, how, how could you ever have a, a view of that? So your view must be limited. And then I think that just opens up for me, at least like an avenue for compassion too, right? Like if, if we're all coming to whatever situation with such um, all of this infinite causes and conditions, then, um, you know, how, how can you not have feelings of compassion for anyone in that situation? Because, um, you know, not to say that we don't have power or, or that we can't take action and that we don't have responsibility, but just, you know, we're, all of us are set here by a lot of <laughs> uh, karma streams or whatever. And so you just, to acknowledge that feels um, important and a, a way of, um, recognizing how, well, you know, not only close we all are to each other, but like co-identified with each other or whatever. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I, I love that title for his book, the world is otherwise, you know, I mean, it's just the, that that's such a helpful reminder all the time. And I think the world could be otherwise is what you're talking about, like noticing where you can respond to the world and you can make a change, like your union is making a change for something different to happen than what would have happened. You know, I don't know. So I think it's kind of interesting how that can play out in Bodhisattva practice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's a, I don't know if you want to call it attention or what, you know? um, Yeah. Like to acknowledge reality, to act as, you know, skillfully as you can, but without then getting too attached to whatever outcome might come from those actions and um, but always being skillful and responsive, you know? Yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, I have seen the benefit of having a union um, in that way, you know, that it's not about like acquiescing to a kind of reality, um, you know, not when you have sort of a clear vision of like, in this case, safety for your members. Um, That's really important because (laughs) It's a union of 26,000 people. And so, you know, it's not just me. It's, it's teachers, paraprofessionals who are, who might, may be in their, you know, maybe older, maybe having, may have, you know, whatever comorbidities or whatever that would make them very um, vulnerable to the virus, et cetera. So you feel, you feel that connection with those folks in an effort like this for sure that you might not feel, you know, without um, a group, you know, like a union like that. So it's very powerful. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. So uh, other responses or comments or uh, questions? Very rich area of practice. Yes, David Weiner. Yeah, I just wanted to say, Bo, uh, I saw on the uh, website that you were speaking tonight, I'm actually writing a proposal for CPS because we're a vendor to CPS. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> and so I have this. Yeah, put a good word in. Oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, so I didn't sit because I got to get this thing done tonight, yeah. but I, want, I wanted to hear you and I'm so glad I was able to hear you. Um, I resonate with the why me a lot. Uh, um, that's a, uh, a familiar, <laughs> a familiar thing. In fact, years and years and years ago, God, 40 years ago, I took one of those, you know, human potential uh, trainings and we all had nicknames and mine was why me? <laughs> <laughs> and I finally sharing that. <laughs> and I finally got to take off my nickname when I finally realized that my contract with myself was to let go. <laughs> and, and, you know, that's, you know, let go of that, that constant feeling like the world is against, against us. Um, yeah. I don't know if you know David Hill. I didn't know David Hill until recently, who is a former member of the Sangha, who's now living in Denver. Yeah. And he's there on uh, Thursday morning with Hogan. Oh, yeah, I've been there once with him. Yeah. Yeah, and and he has that same thing. He said the same thing about it's not personal <laughs> and it's not permanent. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, and that we just have to see that. So thank you for reinforcing that teaching tonight. Yeah. That's the, it's important for me to hear. So, so thank you for saying it. Yeah, thank I appreciate that. Thank you for coming tonight. It's great seeing you. Yeah. Uh, thank you, David. Did, Dylan, did you have your hand up? Well, so you you brought up a, a lot of very important things in your talk, but I really lit up when you started talking about B movies, and so I wanted to talk about B movies with you. <laughs> are, you, are, you are you are you are you up for it, Bo? Oh, I mean, I'm up for it. Yeah, I, I can't call myself an expert on. Well, that's that's what I was going to ask. Is like, so have has your have you watched any during the? Because I thought your your analogy of the of like this the the pandemic being the lost B movie of, of America being a, a great a great idea. So I don't I don't know if you have I mean, you, has have you watched any during the pandemic to kind of get through or? I'm trying to think. I mean, um, no, I can't think of anything specific. I mean, you know, I know of. <laughs> Well, I was thinking a bit of The Rock, I guess, as a star. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't even know if those are B-movies. Those are just like Hollywood blockbusters at this point. Um, but uh, I, I can't say that I've watched anything uh, a classic B-movie recently. No, I'm sorry. But I'm thinking no, of like... No, it, it's cool. Yeah. What's yeah, that? Yeah. I'm thinking of, you know... I. I, I at some point, I watched a bunch of that stuff, like Piranha. Did you do you know that movie? Yeah. That See, now movie? we're talking. Now yes, we're talking. Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, See, I'm aware. Yeah, yeah. What What I love about them is that like there's 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 an, uh, a knowing of like okay, listen, we got this much money in an octopus costume, so let's see what we can do, you know? And like there's 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 such a there's such a, a gleefulness to it that I. I, I don't know. I find it a lot more appealing most of the time than like, you know, the queen starring, you know, uh, yeah. Meryl Streep or something. There's, there's kind of a, uh, I don't know. It, it's, it, there's, there's, um, and there's just so much creativity in, in that. It, like, as you were demonstrating with like your pitch right there, you know? So a lot of times, you know, there's, there's a lot of lost, uh, um, uh, artists or auteurs, you know, like uh, filmmakers like uh, Fulci and Bava and like all these guys that were making drive-in movies that are actually like surrealist masters, but because they're making drive-in movies, nobody really gave them the, the, the time of day, you know? So yeah, yeah, just, just standing up for the B movies. I love it. Yeah. I, I feel like they're like, you know, a little more DIY too, you know, like that because they weren't working with such huge budgets, they were a little, maybe able to have their kind of, personal vision expressed a little bit more. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so Dylan, are you suggesting that we see our lives as B movies and just enjoy them? <laughs> or we could, yeah, sure. Yes. That's exactly what I mean. I mean, it was an idea that came up from reading that passage about Suzuki Roshi. And I'm like, well, maybe that might be helpful at times, you know, really. I mean, it, cause it's just, it's kind of just unbelievable. Uh, uh, yeah. And you can't, this isn't, we're not living in like a time of like a prestige drama. I don't feel like, you know, the production values are pretty low and so uh, <laughs> uh, and that's okay. But um, yeah, it's, it's helpful to see it a little as at time, you know, a little more messy than what it's pitched as maybe. It's just, it's very comforting for me to think of, Suzuki Shinru Suzuki watching violent samurai movies on a Saturday night with a bunch of his friends. That's that that brings me a lot of joy. Me too. To know that that was a thing. Absolutely. So. And that he was so happy. He's like, I like them all. Yes. And you can just like picture the big smile on his face. I mean, I love that. It was awesome. Asian, I think I saw your hands. Yes. Thank you. And thank you, Benji-san. <laughs> I really wanted to come hear your talk. And wow, what a wonderful talk. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it was a wonderful talk and have so many themes. I don't even know which ones to pick out. Um, but I wanted to start by just thinking about your students who yeah. are in, you know, all this same kind of chaos and maybe even more. And maybe you are the only, you know, voice of sanity that comes to them every day. 
and how, you know, maybe even though they don't fully appreciate that now, they will one day look back to those times with, you know, Mr. Golwitzer and the pandemic. And <laughs> yeah, Mr. G. Mr. G. Yeah. <laughs> I um, mean, yeah, sorry. That sounds, like a, no, that sounds like a B movie, Mr. G and the pandemic. <laughs> like a 70s sitcom. Um, You're the hero, Bo, Mr. Yeah, G yeah, and right. the pandemic. Well, I, and I, yeah, and you know, it's funny, and I, just to say, like, they should be included probably in that list of support in, like, a kind of indirect way, too. But, yeah, I, I'm sorry to cut you off. Yeah, right? no, that's okay. They're, I mean, they're the future Buddhas in all this. Yes. But, um, and, and a pandemic itself, I think, is the, you know, the fodder for a B-movie. <laughs> exactly. So we, we don't need an octopus suit. But um, I just was also, I kind of, you know, I, I feel like I have to make a little, you know, reference to kind of, you're thinking about the theme of, you know, why me in the in particular versus, you know, well, why not me in, in the universal and um, just sort of the interplay between those two. But but your why me also brings up for me um, my personal favorite movie, possibly of all time. And this is a guilty pleasure to say this because it's not that sophisticated. But my favorite movie is Defending Your Life with Albert Brooks and Meryl Streep. Yeah, classic. Yeah, from 30 years ago. And I remember watching it 30 years ago and I just loved it. And I and I really identified with Albert Brooks is in like the you know, he gets to the afterlife and it's like, you know, his hotel room is cramped and, you know, he didn't make the tram and, you know, he can the food is not that great. Everything for him is just like this kind of sucks. And then he meets Meryl Streep and for her, everything is like wonderful. You know, she, he dies, um, you know, in an embarrassing way and she dies like, you know, in some heroic way. And, and they play the, you know, the movie of her leading the kids out of the house, out of the burning house. And, you know, and she's got like, I'm staying at the most wonderful hotel. There are chocolate swans on my pillow every night. And, and I remember telling my therapist at the time about this and my experience and my experience of like, you know, how come I got the, the Albert Brooks, you know, <laughs> life. And, and she said to me, have you not considered that they're actually in the same place mm. that, that he is experiencing this his way and she's experiencing it her way. And, and so the, the world is the way it is, but it also could be different. Yeah. Yeah, and it probably is different too. And but I and I appreciate, yeah, I, that that's helpful to me because it's like, even as I was like kind of considering the talk and this this, this theme of why me, you're you're a little like reluctant to put that forward as something that you know occurs to you repeatedly because it's like it feels, especially in the midst of all this, pretty like, you know, maybe self indulgent or like, uh, you know, it, it is a limited kind of point of view. But I also think my experience with practice has been, though, you know, and like we chant, it's like that. That's a, a gateway, you know. I, I, you know, that's the ground on which, you know, it's often for me like <laughs> neuroses, anxiety, worry, um, those limited kind of points of view. That, that I mean, they they brought me here in the first place, and so I, you know, I wouldn't be practicing without um, those, uh, you know, in another context, slightly. And in our culture, I think, like, embarrassing or, or like, kind of, like, hard to admit stuff. Although, yeah, you know, yeah, Albert Brooks has made a whole career out of, like, that kind of neurotic, yeah, you know. But it's really helpful to me to, to recognize how helpful, in a way, that delusion, those delusions have been for me, you know. Yeah, and they, you know, we're all, we all bring our, ancient, our own ancient twisted karma yeah. to our practice, and, and we... And we avow it and we deal with it. Um, but uh, I, I just wanted to add one one final thing, which was many, many years ago, um, Tigan did a seminar on the Paramitas, kind of like, you know, this upcoming one. Um, and he went around the room and asked everybody, what is your, do you, do you, we were on the, the Paramita of powers, balas. And uh, he said, you know, does that anybody have a power or, a, or, a, or an ability or a skill? And I really I later on, I, I didn't think of this in the class. I only thought of it later on. But I want I really wished I had said, yes, I can withstand suboptimal conditions. 
And so I, ever since then, I've been able to like own that power and like we're, we're all totally withstanding suboptimal conditions. And sometimes, I mean, and, and that's, that's the reality, you know, that is, we are suffering, man. And, and we can find, you know, whatever, whatever degree of freedom you can find within that, that's, that's your degree of freedom. You know, that's, yeah. that's Buddha going beyond Buddha. I really appreciate that. I remind the students of that a lot, you know, because they, they, they don't have context for this. They're nine. Yeah. So I'm like, you guys are fourth graders in a global pandemic like that. And you're going to school on a computer for five hours a day and you're doing well, you know, like no one's done this in a hundred years. And this is historic. You know, you try to pitch it as like you're doing a historic thing right now by and, and you feel from, you know, some people, you know, you want to just, just to, I don't know, just to survive day to day in very difficult circumstances. And then also to have in that survival, like good moments, laughter, uh, a feeling of freedom, accomplishment in terms of an academic thing or two, like that's a huge accomplishment, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's worth reminding ourselves what this is as much as possible, you know, so that we have that ground to like be graceful to each other. Yeah. Thank, thank you for just such a thought provoking and wonderful and, and genuine and heartfelt talk. I appreciate it. Thank you. Maybe we have time for one more comment or response. And I want to thank you, Asian, for all that you said. And yes, we're the superpower of withstanding a pandemic. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but anybody else uh, comment or somebody who hasn't spoken yet? If I may, again, if no one has. Yeah, David, go ahead, David. Bo, uh, um, well, knowing that you've done improv, <laughs> what's come up for me a lot when you're talking just now, especially is the old improv game. Uh, and, it, and I'm using it in chaplaincy with, with, with the patients who are suffering from dementia. And the old thing in dementia was, you know, you try to give them pictures and bring them back to reality. And this is the way you, who you are. And then the, the new way of dealing with it is using the old and so mm-hmm. improv game. Mm-hmm. So, oh, there's monkey in the trees. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's early in the season for them. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, there's so many of them. Maybe we should bring one into the house. Oh, no, we can't bring monkeys in the house. Oh, no, we'll put pants on them, you know, and you just keep on going and, 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 and let it go. That, that this whole pandemic is, is a great big and so <laughs> improv. <laughs> and, right. and, and yes, and too, right? That's the other sort of improv. Yes, and, yeah. I've, yeah. I've read about that, like that kind of work with, people with dementia where it's just, yeah, rather than kind of trying to steer them toward your reality, it's like, you know, and and that's the element of play and improv is just like say yes to whatever is being proposed and uh, build from there. And yeah, I mean, that's, I think we're all doing that to one degree or another right now. I mean, and, and it can be a struggle, but you know, certainly I'm doing that every day where it's like this piece isn't here today. This isn't working. This is working. So uh, how quickly can you pivot? How quickly can you adapt? And, yeah. and uh, yeah, I, I feel lucky that, you know, I feel lucky to have that experience. And, and honestly, like it's, I've seen that in lots of other people I work with, even this past week, you know, my administration, in my school have been so adaptive and flexible. And I've been really appreciative of that. Um, Cause that's what's called for here. And, but it's, it's difficult to do when you have kind of an old idea or inflexible ideas of how something should be, you know? Yeah. yeah. So thank you. That's awesome work. I mean, I'm kind of jealous. That sounds like a lot of fun, honestly. <laughs> and so uh, here we are um, uh, playing in the pandemic. Uh, and it's hard work and but the effort can be joyful as you were saying Bo, as Norman says and so uh, let's um, close it out with the four bodhisattva vows if you could Co, and then we'll have 
time for announcements and uh, just to hang out for anyone who can stay.